Welcome to episode 9 of Matthew Linity, Critical Study of Matthew and Masculinity. In this series, I'll be navigating the world of Matthewan research, identifying assumptions, connecting old and new interpretations, including questions and perspectives previously overlooked or undervalued. There's a whole world of research that awaits. Are you ready? This episode is about the parallel story to how Joseph almost does not become known as the father of Jesus, because he thought it would not be right for him to claim to be the father of Mary's child, uh, nor to pursue marital relations with Mary. There's actually a parallel story that for some reason we haven't previously studied, even though it's such a close story parallel. Much closer than the apocryphal story of Noah's birth or the apocryphal story of Moses' conception. So it's time to study this story parallel and to help answer the question of why Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 25 is so focused on Joseph. Uh, what Joseph is doing, what Joseph is not doing, what Joseph is told to do, what he ends up doing or not doing. Why is it so focused on Joseph? Verse 3 of Matthew chapter 1 has already dropped a hint as to what the story parallel is. So I'll begin reading aloud the relevant portions of Matthew chapter 1, in this case, the first three verses, and then verses 18 to 25. Book of the Progeneration of Jesus the Messiah, heir of David, heir of Abraham. Abraham progenerated Isaac. Isaac progenerated Jacob. Jacob Progenerated Judah and his brothers. Judah progenerated Perez and Zerah from Tamar. The progeneration of the Jesus Messiah was this way. His mother Mary, being betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, her having a pregnant belly from the Holy Spirit became apparent. Joseph, her husband, being righteous and not wanting to shame her, decided he would divorce her quietly. Having resolved to do these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for her child is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." This whole thing occurred so as to be a fulfillment of that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall have a pregnant belly, she shall give birth to a son, they shall call his name Immanuel, which, translated, is God is with us. Joseph, rising from sleep, did as was commanded to him by the angel of the Lord. He took his wife. He was not knowing her up till the time she gave birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. Why is it so focused on what Joseph is doing or what Joseph is not doing? We could even see it in verse 24, where it refers to the lack of sexual intercourse, uh, which we've already been told previously, and it tells us again that there's a lack of sexual intercourse between Mary and Joseph, but this time it says he did not have sex with her, uh, which is, uh, we didn't need to be told it uh, as about, as if it's sounding like it's Joseph's decision to re 
to refrain from having sex? Joseph's decision to abstain. What? What? Why are we? Why are we keeping on focusing on Joseph so much? Uh, this whole story seems to be about what Joseph is intending to do, and then what Joseph is told to do, and then what Joseph ends up doing. So, what Joseph is doing and not doing is seems to seems to be all about Joseph. This entire story. Now, if we're wondering, well, why? Why is it about Joseph so much? Um, well, the short answer we can quite easily see is, well, it comes it comes after this patrilineal genealogy that, that, that led all the way up to Joseph, and then it suggested that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. So Jesus seems to be inheriting Joseph. Um, Jesus seems to be the heir of Joseph somehow, even though he's not the biological heir. So how how does it happen? How does how does the father son relationship work out so that Jesus becomes Joseph's heir? Or another way of saying it is, Joseph becomes Jesus's father. And now we don't normally think of it this way, uh, but it's the same thing, really. How Jesus becomes Joseph's son is how Joseph's, Joseph becomes Jesus's father. Uh, yeah, but for some reason we don't tend to, to, to see that, well, that's, that's the more accurate representation that we've got here. It's about how does Joseph become Jesus's father? So we've got, we've got a story about Joseph who does not uh, look like he's going to claim paternity rights. He's he doesn't think he has a right to claim, but paternity rights. He and he and um, Mary have not even begun a sexual relationship yet. It wouldn't it wouldn't be right to to claim Mary as his wife and the child as his child. He's not going to claim paternity or marital rights at all. That's that's the plan. And then, well, he's told no, don't worry. There's no problem. He can he can do that. So Joseph thought that it would be wrong to do so. Uh, he thought that the right thing was would be to 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 divorce quietly, to to not say that he's not the father, but to not claim to be the father. Uh, it's, it's it's a very very um uh, caref- carefully he, want, he wants to be very careful to not make things worse. Uh, wants to be discreet, to sort of step aside quietly. Uh, so he doesn't think it's right. He doesn't think it's right to, to go ahead. So in the end, it ends up going ahead only because he's told to go ahead. So we have a, end up with a story of, well, how did, how did it work out that Joseph did go ahead and claim paternity rights? And um, um, he claims that Mary as his wife and the child as his child. How how does that eventuate? Well, the more that we see that verse 16 is connected to uh, the, the second part of Matthew chapter 1, the mes- second part of Matthew chapter 1 is following on from verse 16, which had, had introduced the, the relationship between Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And uh, we have the story in verse 18 to 25 how did it work out? How did Joseph become the father of Jesus? So that's the short answer of why it's so focused on Joseph. Now, um, the there is a another attempt by scholars to, po- to to point out some parallel stories, some similar stories 
where we have some kind of jeopardized paternity. So the paternity is jeopardized either before conception or or after the birth. Uh, so, for example, the apocryphal story of Moses uh, not almost not being conceived because Moses's parents were potentially going to be divorced. Um, well, it's a story of Moses's father deciding not to divorce Moses's mother when other men were getting together, deciding that they were all going to um, divorce their wives. They're all going to have a mass uh, separation. So, at, this is at the point. Uh, this is not this is not part of the book of Exodus, but this is the apocryphal version that that takes place when the Egyptians are killing the the boys, the the baby boys. And so the, the um, fathers uh, have a meeting and they decide uh, to stop procreating. So they say, let's, let's all separate from our wives and stop procreating. It's just, it's just not right if, if, the, um, if the babies are going to be thrown into to the Nile. Uh, and Moses' father stands up and says, actually, no, no, I don't think we be right to to divorce our wives and stop procreating, I think that would be complying. That would be complicit to the genocide by just giving up. So he says he, he's going to go home and um, go home to his wife and um, have marital relations, keep, keep procreating. And he encourages the other men to do the, to do the same. Well, the, the story fluctuates according to many different versions. The story appears in many different Versions. In one version, it's Moses's older sister Miriam, who tells him not to divorce the mother. So it's um, his 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 daughter that that tells him. In another version, Miriam is not born yet because the parents have not yet gotten married, and the father's contemplating whether or not to get married. So the parents are contemplating whether or not to get married. Uh, in, in another version. Uh, I think they separate and then they get back together by remarrying each other. So there's lots of different versions of, of like whose idea it was to uh, separate or to not separate. Uh, so some scholars like to point out that, well, there's, there's a bit of a parallel there to our story about there's the potential for divorce, which would, which would um, jeopardize the whole um, conception and birth of Moses. So that, that's, that's similar. Some people like to point out, well, this is, this it's a parallel, a little bit, little bit of a parallel there. Other scholars like to point out the apocryphal story of Noah's birth and how Noah's father thought that he was not Noah's father. When he saw Noah born and Noah was speaking and prophesying, Noah, Noah's father freaked out and thought that he, he wasn't the father. Um, and so he, he's not going to claim this, this child as, as his child. He didn't, he said, well, he doesn't know what to do, really. But then he ends up getting a prophecy from uh, um, from Methuselah, I think, um, indicating that yeah, Noah is his child. Noah's going to bring some kind of salvation. And uh, also Noah's mother uh, reminds Noah's father of, of the time nine months previously and was that they conceived, uh, that they made, um, that they had sexual relations. So, um, so he's reminded of that. And so, yeah, so it, it all works out. Um, and the paternity is, is resolved. So there's a couple of parallels here that we could find. 
And the topic of pornea also comes up in that story, unsanctioned sexual unions, because uh, Noah's mother is accused by Noah's father of pornea. And the topic of pornea does come up in Matthew chapter 1. Well, some people, some people think that Joseph is, is accusing Mary of pornea, which is, that's not quite correct. He, he doesn't think it's right for him to, to, himself to, to pursue marital relations with Mary. He thinks that, that pursuing marital relations with Mary would be pornea. Uh, but yeah, but the topic of pornea does come up. So there's a couple of parallel aspects, a couple of parallel um, points in the story, the apocryphal story of the birth of Noah. However, there is a better parallel, a much better parallel. Uh, we don't need to try to, to find parallels in the apocryphal stories of, of Noah and, and Moses. Uh, that, that, I mean, even though this, those stories are well known in the first century, and yes, perhaps readers and hearers of Matthew would have known those stories, but they wouldn't really be thinking of those as the closest parallels. There's a much closer parallel. In fact, there's a story that contains so many, so many parallels with the story of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. It's just, it's, just, it's, it's unbelievable that we haven't seen these parallels earlier. In fact, there's even a word-for-word quotation where the same expression happens, and that expression is, "He did not know her." So, if we were wondering. How do we how do we interpret this this phrase this, this this expression where it says that Joseph still had not had sex with Mary uh, in verse twenty four when it says he did not know her prior to the time she gave birth to a son when he says he did not know her that's a word for word expression that also turns up in the parallel or there's one of many many parallel moments that we find with the, with this story so what is the story? It's the story that we find in Genesis 38. Genesis 38 is the story of how Judah produced Perez and Zerah from Tamar. That is the story that we find the same expression and a whole bunch of other parallels. Now, all of the parallels are found uh, within about three verses uh, in Genesis chapter 38. So it's a long chapter that, that most of it's not, not paralleled, but then there comes a point in the story where there is a bunch of parallels where it starts to sound more and more like Matthew chapter 1, uh, or I should say the other way around. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, starts to sound more like Genesis chapter 38. So I'm going to read aloud Genesis chapter 38 and I uh, encourage listeners to, to listen out for where, at, what, at what point in the story does it become parallel? What, what, where are the parallels? Listen out for them. There's some corresponding points uh, to look out for. But yeah, the first, the first part of Genesis chapter 38, it's, it's obviously it's, there's, there's not, <laughs> there's not nothing in common for a long time. And I just feel like I'll read the entire chapter. It doesn't feel fair just, just to pick out the three verses that are, that are parallel. It doesn't really do justice to the context of, of the story. So it's a nice standalone story. Genesis chapter 38, 
Oh, well, it obviously connects with the other chapters in, in Genesis as well, but but it can be read as a standalone story, a very clear story of how it was that Judah became the father of Perez and Zerah from Tamar. Now, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and arrived as far as a certain Adolamite man whose name was Hera. And there Judah saw a Canaanite man's daughter whose name was Shua, and he took her as wife, and he had intercourse with her. She conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. And after she had conceived again, she bore a son and called his name Unan. And further again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Now she was in Kesbi when she bore them. And Judah took for Ur, his firstborn, a wife, whose name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, happened to be wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God killed him. Then Judah said to Unan, Go have intercourse with your brother's wife, and do as a brother-in-law does by raising up offspring for your brother. But because Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he would spill his semen on the ground during intercourse with his brother's wife, so that he would not give offspring to his brother. It was seen to be evil in the sight of God that he did this, and God put him to death too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Go live as a widow in the house of your father until my son Shelah is grown big. Judah said this to prevent Shelah's expected death like his brothers. Having departed, Tamar stayed in the house of her father. Time went on, and the wife of Judah, Shua, died. And after Judah had been comforted, he went up to Timnah, to those who were shearing his sheep, he and the shepherd of his, Hera the Adolamite. And this was reported to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And taking off the garments of her widowhood, she put on a lightweight garment and adorned herself and sat down near the gates of Ainan which is on the way past Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was now grown up. Yet Judah still did not give her to him as wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had changed her look, and he did not recognize her. Then he turned aside to her from the path and said to her, Allow me to have intercourse with you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me for having intercourse with me? And he said, I will send to you a young goat from the goats, from the flocks. And she said, If you give a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give to you? And she said, Your ring and your neckband and the staff that is in your hand. And he gave them to her. And he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant from him. 
and rising up, she went away and she took off her lightweight garment and put on the garments of her widowhood. Now, Judah sent the young goat from the goats by the hand of his shepherd, the Dolomite, to recover the pledge from the woman, and he did not find her. Then he asked the men of the place, Where is the prostitute who was at Ainan by the road? And they said, There was no prostitute here. And he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And the people of the place say that there was no prostitute there. And Judah said, well, Let her have them, but let us not be laughed at. I've done my part. I've sent this young goat, but you have not found her. Now it happened, after a few months, that it was reported to Judah, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has prostituted herself, and behold, she has a pregnancy from her prostitution. Then Judah said, Bring her to be burned. But as she was being brought, she sent a message to her father-in-law, saying, I have a pregnancy from the man whose things these are. And she said, Notice whose is the ring, and the neckband, and this staff. Then Judah acknowledged them, and said, Tamar has been proven right over me, because... I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not again know her. Now it happened at the time when she gave birth that she had twins in her belly, and it happened during giving birth that one twin put his hand out, and taking it, the midwife bound red material on his hand, saying, This one will come out first. But when he retracted his hand, then immediately out came his brother. And she said, What sort of a barrier has been cut through because of you? And she called his name Perez. And afterward, his brother came out, upon whom was the red material on his hand, and she called his name Zerah. Okay, so uh, if you're familiar with Genesis 38, you probably would have noticed that there's a there's a little bit of difference in um, the English version that I'm using with the English version that you might be more familiar with or the Hebrew version, if you're familiar with the 10th century Hebrew version. And that's because I've been reading an English version that's based on the Greek version of an older Hebrew version. Uh, There's not a lot of differences, but you might have picked up that uh, perhaps the biggest difference was that when it said she veiled her face or she covered her face with a veil, um, well, that, that we don't have that in the Greek version. In the Greek version, it, it's it's that she changed her look. She she obscured her face uh, with makeup and uh, and well, maybe also a veil. It doesn't it doesn't really mention a veil in in how she's changing her identity to, to, so that she doesn't look like her, 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 um, self. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, that's perhaps the, the biggest difference. Um, yeah, so there's not really a lot of, a lot of other differences to, to, um, to worry about. Um, yeah, but I, so I think I, I was thinking that, well, whoever is listening to Matthew being read in the first century in Greek is probably already, if they're, if they're hearing the book of Genesis being read, they're probably also uh, familiar with that being read in Greek. So I thought, oh, well, 
make sense to um, yeah to go back uh, rather than just presuming that um, everyone who's listening to Matthew in Greek would also have known the Hebrew version, which they may well have known the Hebrew version, but it seemed to be um, obvious that if, if they're if they're listening to Matthew in Greek and reading Matthew in Greek, then well, I'll I'll go to the the Greek version that it seems to be more natural to, to do that. All right. So, um, did you spot the, the points of correspondence? Did you spot where the parallels were? Uh, so, uh, there comes a point in the story where just as Mary is pregnant and Joseph uh, realizes that he, he's got to decide what he's going to do. Um, well, similarly in the story of Judah realizing that Tamar is pregnant and he makes a decision about um, what to do. But there's a whole bunch of correspondences right at that moment, so uh, I'll go through them. Okay, so at this point of the story, there's a similar setup that, that's happening. There's a similar scenario where there's a woman who is betrothed, who is waiting to enter the man's household. Uh, waiting for the man to decide that she can enter his household. And uh, then the man finds out that the woman, the betrothed woman, is already pregnant. And she's already pregnant to an unknown father. And then so the man makes a decision about what to do. So we've already had several parallels just within, just within the moment of pregnancy becoming noticeable. The moment that pregnancy is noticeable... Um, we realized, oh, the, both pregnancies are with a betrothed woman who's waiting to enter the man's household, waiting for the man to decide, and the man finds out that the woman's already pregnant and that the pregnancy is unknown. The, the, the man doesn't know who the father of the child is. And so then the man makes a decision about what to do, but then that decision is overridden by, by some new information, and then, and then there's a new outcome. So the man's plan isn't carried out at all. Uh, so the new outcome is that the man is conferred with the status of fatherhood. So we have this surprise paternity aspect, which, which both, both stories have. So we have so many parallels here. I mean, even if we just limit them down to the woman betrothed waiting to enter the household, the man finds out the woman's already pregnant. Uh, the pregnancy is an unknown father. The man makes a decision. The decision is overridden. And then the new outcome confers the man with status of paternity. If we just limit it down to those six points, that's six parallels that we find just there. And there's more. That's, that's just the beginning. Um, so, uh, it's really remarkable that we haven't, we haven't spotted this before, but, uh, we've got six parallels here. Now, the point of having parallels is to set up a scenario to show that, that there's something to notice. Well, why? But why are we? What's the point? Like, okay, so what? That the stories are similar. Well, the point of having something so similar is to show the difference. I know. That, I know that sounds a little bit um, uh, counterintuitive, but but the differences. Uh, can only be spotted once we see the similarities. Obviously, when there's just complete differences, there's no comparisons. But once you've got 
similarities that are drawn, then the comparisons can be made. So the similarities are there in order to draw attention to what's different. It's not just to point out things that, oh, look at that, happen to be similar. Uh, but what are the differences within the similarities? So this is where we notice a contrast, a really, like a, a big contrast that, that's happening. So um, if we look at the, the, the big difference between these two stories, the man, in, in the case of, of Judah's story with, with Tamar, the man, Judah, he responds a certain way, and it's in complete contrast to Joseph from Matthew chapter 1. So we have a complete contrast with Joseph, Joseph's response uh, when we compare it to Judah's response. So the, the situation is set up to be similar so that we can spot the difference of response um, for the man in each case. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so I'd like to point out three aspects to the response. I mean, we could go more complicated uh, as well and and really get into the different motivation of the response. But the three things that stand out that are just obvious in the difference to the response, uh, Judah's response, how Judah responds to Tamar's pregnancy, and Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, how Joseph responds to Mary's pregnancy. Okay, so if we think of, uh, of the three aspects that are the, the most noticeable, the time of the response, uh, how, how speedy, how quick, or how slow the response is, the publicity of the response, so to do with the, the public nature or private nature of the response, and who is uh, judged, like is the woman being judged or criticised, um, what what's the assumption of, of judgment that's being made? So this is the, these are three main aspects that are that are being contrasted. So number one, time, the time, the response in terms of the time that Judah takes. Well, Judah hears and responds immediately. So Judah's response is abrupt and blunt, but without getting into uh, you know the harshness of the response. Just in terms of just the time taken of the response. Judah's response is quick. It's quick. It's rushed. Now, notice the contrast with Joseph. Joseph's response is that, well, he, he's realized and he's considered what to do. He resolves what he will do. Um, he's, you know, he's aware of what he should do and what he should not do. And he decides what action to take after he's considered the options. And then he goes to sleep before acting on anything. So, so we've got quite a contrasted response here uh, in terms of the time, the time taken to respond. All right, now let's look at the public nature of the response. Judah, well, Judah responds publicly. Uh, he speaks publicly. He calls for a public response uh, by asking others to, to bring out Tamar so that she can be publicly burnt, so burnt in public. Like This is a very, very public kind of response that Judah is having. Every 
Everything is just very, very public. In contrast, Joseph does not want to go public. He doesn't want a public response. He doesn't want to say anything. He's not saying anything in public. He's not calling for a public response. He's not expecting the public to to be involved in in, in um, what what's going on at all. So we have this clear contrast again, where it's saying that Joseph doesn't want to publicly shame Mary. In fact, he's deciding that what would be best would be a private response, a private divorce, so that there's that word that's the opposite of public. All right, okay, now the, the third aspect is the judgmental nature that, that Judah has towards Tamar. So Judah is standing in judgment over Tamar. He's um, demonstrating a judgmental opinion. He, he judges Tamar to be guilty of pornia. Uh, so all the guilt, it's, it's all Tamar's fault. Um, get rid of Tamar because it's her fault. So it's a very judgmental attitude. Whereas Joseph... Well, Joseph shows no such judgment of Mary. Uh, there's no blame of Mary found in the story. Uh, compared to Judah, there's just a, an absence of Mary being judged. Instead, Joseph is thinking about his own actions. He's critical of his own potential to be doing something wrong. If he were to be claiming Mary as his wife and... and uh, marital rights and paternity rights, it just would not be right to claim to be in a sexual relationship with Mary and to pursue a sexual relationship with Mary and to be claiming to be the father of her unborn child. No, that wouldn't be right. Joseph does not feel at all that that is right. Maybe in the eyes of the public, he could easily get away with it, would not be right. But what about in the eyes of God? No, that doesn't seem right. Without without permission, to, to go ahead, he's, he just, he's not going to go ahead. Yes, yeah, so if Joseph were to go ahead, that would be his actions introducing something wrong. That, that would be, uh, will his own actions be making things worse? Will they be, will it be introducing, uh, something wrong into the relationship? What, what would be the wrong thing or the right thing for Joseph himself to be doing? So it's a very different kind of attitude that Judah has. So if we were ever wondering about, oh, well, maybe Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, maybe Joseph is a little bit critical of Mary. No, we can see it quite clearly now here when we've got the clear contrast being set up with all of these similarities in order to point out that the contrast is how does the man respond to the woman's pregnancy? So in the case of Judah, it's rushed, it's rash, it's public, and it's judgmental. In the case of Joseph, it's considered. It's it's private, it's discreet, uh, it's it's non-judgmental, it's it's self-critical rather than critical of the woman. So this is a lot to take in because um, these are very important parallels. We've got parallels that are clearly paralleled, and then we have this, these contrasts, which are inverted parallels. So the similarities are there in order to highlight the contrast, the difference between 
Judah's response to Tamar's pregnancy and Joseph's response to Mary's pregnancy. Uh, but but how do we hold all of this together? Like, what's what's the point? I mean, is, is this just like a clever way of telling the story to make it sound like what was going on with Judah is somehow similar to what was going on with Joseph? I mean, so what? Why, why are we being told all of this? Now, um, the bigger so what question, the, the why question is what we'll be getting into next time in episode 10. Uh, that's, that's, we're almost there. We're, we're getting a little bit into the why aspect now. So the what questions and the how questions eventually will lead up, up into the why questions. Uh, but at the moment, if we can just stick to the how question for a little bit longer and notice an interesting thing with the word for word expression that happens, because both stories have a moment in the story where it says, he did not know her. Uh, what does this expression mean in Matthew chapter 1? And what does it mean in Genesis 38? And what is the connection? Why, why do we have an apparent link uh, between the two stories using the same expression? Uh, I think it'll be helpful to, to begin with the variety of expressions that we've got in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, just in verses 18 to 25, we have three kinds of, uh, three varieties of expression to indicate the same thing. So verse 18 and verse 19 and verse 24 are all indicating something to do with the lack of reproductive activity. We find that there are three times in this story unit of Matthew chapter 1 where it's indicating a lack of sexual intercourse no marital relations. Uh, but let's have a look at the kind of language that is used in the text. So verses 18 to 25 of Matthew chapter 1. What are the three kinds of language being used? So we can see that in verse 18, it's the language of sexual union. It uses the language of united. It says, before they became united, uh, before, so before there was a sexual union. And uh, in verse 19, it's referring to the lack of sexual intercourse by using the language that's opposite of marital relations. So Joseph is wanting to, to avoid having marital relations. He doesn't want to take Mary home and pursue marital relations. So he's wanting to pursue going the opposite way. He's Rather than pursuing marital relations, he's pursuing separation. So here, here we have the language that is the opposite of marital relations. And then finally in verse 24, we have the language of of sexual knowledge. So it's, it's, it's the word for knowing when it says he did not know her. We've got three, three different ways of indicating the same thing, of indicating that there is no sexual intercourse between Mary and Joseph. So the, the question of why does it say he did not know her in verse 24, we can break that question down into three questions. And two of the questions we've kind of already answered. So is there any sexual intercourse between Mary and Joseph? No. It's telling us again for the third time, 
it's making it super clear that no, it's not Joseph's biological offspring. It's not Joseph's. It's just in case we might be thinking, well, yes, but what if Mary um, miscarried and then the child that she ended up having was Joseph's child? Because what if people weren't counting the months correctly and it was actually Joseph's child that, that she ended up giving birth to? Well, no, no, it's making it super clear that no, it's not Joseph's biological offspring. It's, it's, it's making it super clear. So yeah, that's the first thing that we can see that this is this is why it's being told to us for a third time to just to make that super clear. And we can also see that well, why does it say he did not have sex with her rather than they did not have sex with each other? Is well, it's because we've got a parallel story that it's it's linking it with the parallel story by using the same language as it used in Genesis 38. So if we're wanting to know what that means in Matthew chapter 1, it might be helpful to have a look at what it means in Genesis 38. Well, the first time it's used in Genesis chapter 38, it's in verse 16, I think, where it's referring to the fact that Judah is propositioning Tamar for sex, uh, just like she's anticipated uh, and set up to happen. And it says... He did not know her to be his daughter-in-law. And, and then the, the second time that, that the expression is used in Genesis 38 is just prior to the time that Tamar gives birth. So just prior to that mention of the birth report, it says, thereafter, he did not know her again. Now, already, if we compare this usage with how it's, how it's happening in Matthew chapter 1, where it says he did not know her prior to the time that she gave birth to a son. So in that sentence that we've got in Matthew, it, it's connected to a time to a, a time clause. And in fact, both, both of them are connected to time clause. In the case of Judah, it's connected to the time where from, from then onwards he did not know her. Whereas in the case of Joseph from Matthew chapter 1, it's connected to, well, prior to the point where Mary gave birth, he did not know her. So they're both connected to a, to a time phrase, and those time phrases are opposite. So here we have the same expression, where it's a, the similarity uh, is in the same sentence as the, the dissimilarity. So the similarity is the dissimilarity. <laughs> the similarity is he did not know her in the case of Judah is referring to a time after the story, um, the main story has just taken place. And in the case of Joseph in Matthew chapter one, it's, it's up till the end of the story episode. Yeah. So what, what else is going on in this phrase in Genesis chapter 38 that might be relevant to compare with Matthew chapter one? Well, if we think about what it means for Judah, it means that, well, he previously had known Tamar in a certain way, and now that's, that way is not going to continue again. That's not again going to happen. Now that he knows that it was Tamar that he knew, he's no longer going to know Tamar in that, that way ever, ever again. So there's, there's a shift. In the case of Judah, there's a shift in the kind of not knowing. Whereas for Joseph, in Matthew chapter 1, it's not a, it's not a shift in the kind of not knowing. It's a consistency that 
So far, Joseph has not had sexual intercourse with Mary, and he's still not going to be having sexual intercourse with Mary at this point of the story, even though it seems like he might have been able to pursue that if, if he had have wanted to, perhaps, but, but it's still not going to be happening. So in, in Joseph's case, there, there's a consistency that we find in verse 18, no sexual intercourse between Mary and Joseph. Verse 19, Joseph's not going to pursue marital relations with Mary. And verse 24, Joseph is still not pursuing sexual intercourse. So it's very consistent in the case of Joseph. Uh, also, we can look at how there's something that converges in the two stories at this point. So the reason to use the same expression is to highlight the convergence. There's something converging at this point. Because in the case of Judah, this is the point where he suddenly gets his act together and stops behaving so unrighteously and starts behaving righteously. So it makes sense that for Judah, uh, it would be telling us he did not thereafter, like thereafter, he did not know her again. So it's it's part of this, this turnaround for Judah getting his act together and taking responsibility for his own actions and and not doing things that he could, you know, maybe he could get away with. But the point is for him to, to grow up a bit, become a bit more mature, take responsibility for himself, start thinking about, is he he's going to stop bossing people around? And so there's a big shift for Judah at this point. It's a big turnaround. So he's just realized that he has been behaving unrighteously. He's been treating Tamar unrighteously. And so it's part of this, this shift where this, this it's like a repentant moment for Judah has, has just happened. Uh, Judah has just declared that it's not Tamar that's in the wrong. Uh, you know, Tamar uh, has been in the right. He's in, in, implicated himself as being in the wrong. So it's just, it's just, that's just happened. And then it says this line, thereafter, he did not know her again. So it's, it's part of this big turnaround for Judah becoming righteous. Now, this is why we can see that in the case of Joseph, in Matthew chapter 1, it's part of the consistency that Joseph has already been behaving righteously consistently all the way through this story episode. So it's a convergence where something righteous is happening in the case of Judah and in the case of Joseph, that the stories are converging. This is at the point where, in the case of Judah, it starts to behave righteously, but in the case of Joseph, there's the convergence because he's already been behaving righteously. We can also see that there are other aspects to the not knowing as well. It's actually quite a multifaceted expression where it says he did not know her. Uh, there's, there's many other facets to what's going on. Because if we think of how Judah had consistently misperceived who Tamar was, there's a lot in the story of Genesis chapter 38 about Judah misperceiving Tamar until the point where Tamar finally takes advantage of the misperception and she deliberately is misperceived in order to be able to to get the child that she keeps getting promised. Uh, so she figures out a way of deliberately being misperceived. And then so when it says he did not know her thereafter, it's referring to Judah did not know Tamar really the first time. I mean, he just didn't know that it was her. He knew someone who he thought was not Tamar. And then obviously it turns out that it, it was Tamar all along. 
And so when it says he did not know her again, it, it's kind of like a, uh, it's more than a double play. I was going to say a double play where it's, it, he knew her before, but now he doesn't know her again. But there's a consistency, consistency in that the fact that he never really knew her. So he's not going to know her anymore. Uh, again, in terms of, well, not in the same way, but again, also in terms of the, the knowing is a different kind of knowing. The, the not knowing is a different kind of not knowing that, that continues. It, it's a very clever line in, in Genesis chapter 38. It summarizes really well what was going on with Judah and Judah misperceiving Tamar and how he, he finally perceives. It's, 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 it's basically uh, a recognition scene that we have. And what we've got in Matthew chapter 1 is it's utilizing the same kind of recognition scene in, ter- in terms of Judah recognizing that he was actually the father. He discovers that, oh, it, he is the father. And Joseph is discovering that he is the father, even though he was right to assume that he was not the father. And so it's drawing attention to the different kind of not knowing being consistently a good kind of, of not knowing. It was it was good that Joseph didn't know. It was good that Joseph didn't pursue to to know Mary when he had the chance, according to the public opinion, to just go for it, just to take Mary home and pursue marital relations with Mary. He decided, no, that, that wouldn't be right. And in fact, we're told that that's correct. That would not be right. Without permission, without permission to do so, Joseph would have been wrong. To, to pursue marital relations with with Mary, that would have been wrong, and so uh, we often we often miss that point. But now that we can compare the two stories, we can see the contrast where Judah is behaving unrighteously up until the point where he realizes that oh, Tamar is not wrong, he is wrong. Tamar is right, he is wrong, and so he he starts acting righteously. And in Joseph's case in Matthew chapter 1, there's already the righteousness there all the way through. Every time it says that there's a lack of sexual pursuit on Joseph's part uh, of Mary, then it's it's saying, well, that's, that's correct. That's, that's, it's showing the very respectful nature. So in the case of Judah, uh, Judah is suddenly being respectful and not trying to just get away with whatever he can get away with. Whereas Joseph, Joseph's already been that kind of right acting man to to not try and get away with what he can get away with but to to act rightly towards others and to be respectful towards Mary and to not try to claim access to Mary's body to not try to pursue what maybe he could get away with but but not to try to pursue that that's that's not the kind of person that he is and so Joseph is already being the right kind of man all the way through the story episode in contrast to Judah. Ultimately, we can see that this is a summary statement of how it was that the father became the father. So in Judah's case, how did Judah become the father? Well, he didn't really know Tamar. I mean, he didn't know that it was Tamar that he knew, and then then he didn't know her after that. Uh, And then in Joseph's case, in Matthew chapter 1, well, how did Joseph become the father of Jesus? By not knowing Jesus' mother. That's, that's how it happened, which is basically the opposite of how we, we might expect it to happen if, if we were to ask someone, how do parents normally become parents? 
uh, how do fathers normally become fathers? Well, in terms of um, if we back in the time of Judah or back in the time of Joseph, uh, people would say, well, there's usually the, the, the parents know each other. The, the parents have sexual intercourse. But this is what we're finding did not happen in the case of Judah and Tamar. And in Joseph's case, he never, he never knew Mary. He never pursued Mary for sexual relations in throughout the whole story episode of how it was that Joseph became the father of Jesus. Well, it happened. How did it happen? By Joseph not knowing Mary. Now, if we didn't study the parallel in Genesis 38 of how it was that Judah became the father of Perez and Zerah by not really knowing Tamar, then we wouldn't have seen all the parallels uh, to help us to unpack, really, really unpack what's going on with Joseph. Why is the story so much about Joseph? Well, suddenly it all makes perfect sense. Of course it's a story about Joseph. Joseph looked like he wasn't going to claim paternity rights. He wasn't going to become known as the father. He wasn't going to raise the child as his child because he, he thought that he wasn't the father. He, he thought that, you know, that was the correct thing to do. If he's not the father, don't claim to be the father. But then he's told to be known as the father, and it all happened without him knowing the heir's mother. So that is the parallel story of how Joseph became the father of Jesus. Okay, so next time we've got the final question. We finally, we finally reached the why question. Why are there a total of five mothers in the Messiah's genealogy? We can see that the first mother is there to highlight how it was that Judah became the father of Perez and Zerah from Tamar. Uh, that that's paralleling the story of how in the final case, where the final heir, how Joseph became the father of Jesus from Mary. These are the parallel stories. We can see that quite clearly. But why do we have three more stories? The writer has included three more stories that are highlighting three more paternities of how Salmon became the father of Boaz, how Boaz became the father of Obed, and how David became the father of Solomon. And there are three more stories. Why do we have a total of five mothers in the Messiah's genealogy? That is the question that we've been waiting to get to. That is the question next time in episode 10. Until then, thank you for listening to episode 9 of Matthew Linity.